say. But one other thing that's really interesting is that a lot of the foods that we found kind of reduce your risk for prostate cancer. So the cruciferous vegetables, the lycopene and tomatoes, the soy, the isoflavins and soy, these things also have a huge impact on your risk for other leading causes of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. So they making these lifestyle changes, adding these foods into your diet, increasing your exercise also decreases your risk for heart disease, for diabetes, for stroke, a lot of the other leading causes of death in the U.S. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 233. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I'm so pleased to bring you this episode about prostate health and decreasing the risk for prostate cancer, because this is such an important topic. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of topics on men's health. We did have a couple of years back, we talked about erectile dysfunction. So we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes so that you can link to that, send it to your man if you want. Now, this episode is going to have two guests and they are co-authors to the book Preventing Prostate Cancer, Reduce Your Risk with Simple Proactive Choices. So it is Dr. Benny Gavi, who is a graduate of the Harvard Medical School and current clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University. For the first 16 years of his career, Dr. Gavi practiced medicine in a hospital setting at Harvard and Stanford. And in 2012, he expanded to an internal medicine practice to focus on personalized health care. In his position, Dr. Gavi has become a strong advocate for and expert on health improvement and disease prevention through nutrition and other lifestyle factors. In addition to his medical practice, Dr. Gavi has spent the past decade sharing his passion for lifestyle choices and disease prevention through nutrition counseling and education. And Maya Alone is a doctor of medicine candidate at Central Michigan University College of Medicine, pursuing her passion for helping others through holistic health care and preventive medicine. She completed her Bachelor of Arts in pre-medicine studies at Whittier College and as a clinical researcher interested in integrative lifestyle medicine, has conducted research with Hadassah Medical Center and Stanford University School of Medicine. So we have a really great discussion. We talk about what prostate cancer is, how common it is, who should get screened for it, what does it entail, signs and symptoms of prostate cancer, but also what the potential side effects and long-term complications are of prostate cancer treatment. And then we get into how can we reduce the risk of prostate cancer with nutrition and lifestyle choices. And we talk about specific foods to include and specific foods that you might want to think about avoiding if you're a man that wants to reduce your risk of prostate cancer. So I think this is a great episode. It really sums everything up. And this book is very easy to read, very quick to read, and everything is referenced. So you can find all of the articles that they reference, which they said it was a hundred different research articles on prostate cancer and lifestyle. So you definitely want to check this out if that's something that you're interested in in your life. So Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. I appreciate you so much. And if you are new to Veggie Doctor Radio, welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope that you will share this episode with somebody that you love and that this could benefit somebody else in your life. So share away. And now let's hear from Dr. Gavi and Maya. Dr. Benny Gavi and Maya Alone, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you for including us. We're delighted to be Awesome. Well, I have your book right here, Preventing Prostate Cancer. This is great. This is a really important topic, something that I think we don't talk about enough. But after reading your book, I realized really creates a lot of morbidity and a lot of burden on some men's lives and, of course, probably their families. But let's start at the very beginning. What is prostate cancer and how common is it? Sure. I'm happy to speak to that a little bit. Uh, the prostate is a gland uh, that men have. It's in the pelvic area. And um, it, it is prone to cancer. About one out, one out of eight or one out of nine men can experience prostate cancer during their lifetime. And if you think about people that you know or, or talk to people that you know, many people know people who have been affected by prostate cancer. It's a pretty common disorder. It's a condition that sometimes can be fatal. About one out of 40 men dies from prostate cancer, but more commonly it affects men in that it causes psychological distress, uh, physical distress, uh, a, a change in one's uh, sense of self, one's self-esteem, potentially energy level and, and bodily function. So it's an important condition in the life of men. Mm -hmm. And just to emphasize and clarify, only men have prostates. I know sometimes I've been asked by women, like, wait, what about my prostate? No, only men have prostates. And when do men typically get screened or should they even get screened for prostate cancer? And maybe what are some of the signs and symptoms if they were to start developing prostate cancer? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And so uh, prostate cancer, it's a little complicated because the screening test that we have, it's just not perfect. There are false positives or false negatives, but there is a, a blood test um, that is available. And at approximately age 50, men should have conversations with their doctor about getting that test performed. Some men could be as early as their 40s, depending on uh, family history uh, and, and other potential risk factors. So probably uh, mid-40s in some men and 50s uh, for other men, uh, there should be a conversation with their doctor. And for many men, it's a blood test. Uh, it also can include a physical examination where a doctor uh, actually can examine the prostate. That's a little bit uncomfortable for men sometimes. Uh, the blood test is certainly a, a lot easier and uh, one test that is commonly used to screen men for cancer before symptoms develop. Uh, there are some symptoms of prostate cancer. Typically, there would be some significant change in the uh, urination pattern, some symptoms that occur when um, men urinate, uh, sometimes difficulty urinating, sometimes pain with urination, maybe blood in the urine, but any kind of significant change in, in that part of the bodily function should, should um, initiate a conversation with the doctor. Mm -hmm. I like how you emphasize that it should be a conversation because any kind of testing or screening really should come with informed consent. That's exactly right. What we also know is that um, a very high percentage of men uh, above age 80, for example, 75 to 80, will have some low-grade prostate cancer that may never cause any issues in their life and that the men will not die from prostate cancer, but die with it from other natural causes. And so not all prostate cancer is aggressive. Some is low grade, especially in older men. And in that situation, one may want to uh, defer screening. One may want to defer um, additional evaluation. So it is a conversation. Mm -hmm. So you brought up a little bit earlier that having prostate cancer can lead to a lot of secondary effects, psychological effects, those kinds of things. So tell me more about the potential side effects and long-term complications of prostate cancer treatment. And maybe we can even back up and, and talk about what is prostate cancer treatment? Like if somebody is to the point where they need to have it treated, what usually is happening? 
Yes. Well, first it begins with uh, an ab most commonly uh, either an abnormal blood test that shows that the uh, blood marker called the PSA is elevated. And so the first thing is that it probably will lead to more frequent blood tests just to trend it or track it. And that may cause um, some distress to tell somebody, hmm, you may have prostate cancer, so there's probably going to be some anxiety around that. If the prostate, uh, if the PSA continues to be elevated, commonly that would lead to a visit with a urologist. It may lead to a prostate MRI. And if there is a sense that there could be prostate cancer, that can often lead to a biopsy, which unfortunately can be invasive, um, can be painful, because there can be um, some bacteria that naturally live in that part of the body. There can be a severe infection or sepsis. So that's kind of the, the part of the journey. If prostate cancer is confirmed and, and, and conversations suggest that it should be treated, then, uh, you know, kind of there, there's a bunch of, there's several options. Sometimes there's radiation treatment and that could cause pain, burning, and because there are other organs in that area, including the bladder, the rectum, part of the intestines, other parts of the body can be adversely affected with burning, pain, diarrhea, things like that. Sometimes men will go on to have their prostate removed. Uh, and that can, obviously, that's surgery. And that can do, cause blood loss. That can cause um, all kinds of issues. Uh, and then commonly, men may have difficulty with urination uh, for some time. Men will have, may have difficulty with sexual function. Uh, men will sometimes have decreased testosterone, which is uh, related to having energy and libido. And um, men may not talk about some of these things or may find it hard to talk about some of these things. So I think there is um, a bit of a, of a silent, um, quality to the kind of suffering. So as a society, we may not be as aware of the burden of suffering because men may be reluctant to share it with uh, people that they're close with or, or their loved ones. Yeah, that's such an important point. And you think of that part of the body and it's true. There's so many different organs in close proximity touching each other. And the prostate is intimately related to a lot of those organs. So if you have to remove it, if you have to kind of mess around in there, it can alter the function of the organs, lead to incontinence and erectile dysfunction and things like that. And, you you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. We see commercials all the time about incontinence in women, like all the time. It's like, you know, of course, it's still seen as like embarrassing and like a stigma, but there's all kinds of commercials for it. But you hardly ever see it portraying men. Right. And so it is one of those things that it seems natural to me that men would be reluctant to talk about. It's not like they can bond with their friends over it. Like women, I mean, women are always talking about how they're laughing and leaking or jumping on the trampoline with their kids and leaking and stuff like that. It just seems to be a common part of something that we talk about. So that can be really different. And I think just to build up on where it could be hidden, for example, is, you know, I know men in my practice who will structure their day around where there's a bathroom located. And so it may come out like, I don't want to go to the theater, but they may not say why they don't want to go to the theater <laughs> or I don't want to go on that car ride to visit so-and-so because there's like no bathrooms or it's hard to find the bathroom, but they may not share why they're not going. So there may be more social isolation. There may be distancing. In some sense, the psychological impact and the impact on the relationship may be as big as the physiological impact. Yeah. And then when we think about longevity and we think about having those factors contributing to living a long, healthy life, connection is so important. So whenever things start interfering with our ability to socialize and connect with other people, that can ultimately affect how long we live a healthy life. So that's really important. Okay. So it's not fun to have cancer. It sounds especially once you get into treatment for prostate cancer, it can create a lot of secondary issues. Is there a way to reduce the risk of prostate cancer with nutrition and lifestyle choices? I can take this question. Go for it, That's Maya. Like <laughs> the question at the heart of all of this, right? Um, so 
this is kind of the basis of, of Dr. Gavi and my book, uh, where we reviewed hundreds of articles on this, this very question. And we do believe that there is strong evidence from the research that has been conducted in this area that men have the capability to reduce their risk for prostate cancer through very simple lifestyle choices, including nutrition and exercise and routine screening like we were talking about earlier. And uh, there's just, there is such a wealth of data in this area. I think that's one of the, the things that surprised Dr. Gavi and I as we were on this journey of writing this book. There has been so much research dedicated to this very question. So much money has gone into this, so many years of work. Um, and that research kind of stops with the scientific community. It kind of remains localized to the medical community and the scientific community. And one of our goals with this book was to kind of break down that barrier and to make that research available to everyone so each individual can form an informed opinion and an educated opinion um, based on the evidence that is out there. Yeah. So you were surprised by just the sheer volume, it sounds like. Were you surprised at all by the fact that there is evidence to show that the risk can be reduced? Or was that something that you kind of already knew going into it? We might have had an inkling, but it definitely wasn't nearly as as much of an impact as we we thought there would be. Like, there's so much more you can do to prevent your risk, and it, you can prevent it so or reduce it so significantly through simple changes. I think um, one article we looked at that was so that spoke so strongly to me personally was an article that looked at um, the effect of one hour, simply one hour of exercise on men's ability to fight cancerous cells in their body, prostate cancerous cells in their body. And this this study like compared a group of men before they before they had exercised their their blood's ability to fight cancer to their blood's ability to fight cancer after they had exercised for one simple hour. And they were able to fight fight the cancerous cells 31% more effectively from simply one hour of exercise. So you can take that and apply it on a larger scale and think what would two hours of exercise do? What would your other lifestyle changes do? You know, I, I think to add to that, thank uh, Maya's great points is that you know, as a doctor, I think uh, what is there's sort of something about it that's surprising and not surprising. I think what's not what what, what wasn't surprising um, is we have known that lifestyle can have a really big impact on people's health, and as doctors, um, we know that certain lifestyles, if people do them, can reduce their chances of heart disease by 50, 60, 70 percent, very large. Um, and so we know that. I think what is surprising to me is how little still lifestyle has made it into the mainstream practice of medicine. I think we're so busy with COVID shots, flu shots, blood pressure, get uh, kind of the day-to-day the -day issues that people are struggling with that often in that doctor's appointment, there isn't the time or the bandwidth to have a conversation on nutrition. And so what's surprising to me is that these conversations have yet to make it into mainstream medicine, yet the American Cancer, the, the American Cancer Society informs us that two-thirds of cancers are preventable by lifestyle intervention. And so there's kind of this ironic uh, juxtaposition of two opposites, something really powerful that exists that's great for our bodies, it's great for the environment, it, 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 it's ethical, it's moral, and it's so good for us with, so, with only positive side effects, and yet we're not harnessing it as, as a medical community. So I think um, some parts of this we know, and then some parts of it's, it's surprising. Wow, it's still not part of mainstream medicine to a large extent, and here we have this wealth of data you know, we stumbled across dozens of really talented researchers who committed decades of their lives to these studies, yet it's not incorporated uh, sufficiently into the practice of medicine. Yeah, it's like the best kept secret, but it shouldn't be a secret, <laughs> right? And you made such a great point earlier. You know, I have a master of public health, so I remember learning so much about primary prevention and secondary prevention and tertiary prevention and all the different levels. And I remember being like super interested in preventive medicine, but really what preventive medicine is, is mostly surveillance. You know, that's what it is. It's a lot of screening, mm. but we don't talk that much to people about what they can do so that their screenings stay 
negative. <laughs> you know, it's more like, okay, now you have a sign of this. Let's do what we can as aggressively as we can so it doesn't progress. But that's not really primary prevention. That's actually secondary prevention, right? So what we really want to do is get to the upstream and do whatever we can so that people don't progress to the point where the screenings are positive. And so there's evidence to show that we can reduce our risk of even, even developing prostate cancer. But what about once you've already developed prostate cancer? And just like you were talking about earlier, it tends to be a slow growing cancer. Some men might live with it for many years, but if a man has been told, hey, your PSA levels are getting high, you might be at risk here, is there still time? So, so I believe the answer is yes. You know, the studies, food studies are hard to do. Um, you know, and, and so my sense of it is, um, we know that many of these studies prevent prostate cancer. I think there's good basis to believe they probably slow it down as well. Um, and frankly, what's the downsides? If you, if you eat more green vegetables, well, your heart will be healthier for sure. <laughs> your mood will be better. Your digestive system will function better and probably it will reduce the chance of progression. You know, do we have firm studies? Um, I, I think, you know, again, these, these are difficult to do. Um, I also obviously don't suggest that people treat their cancer only with nutrition. Um, and so we, that's an important message. Um, but I do think that, um, there is some data that people who have prostate cancer benefit from these um, primarily a plant-based diet. Um, and, and I think that it's, uh, it's worth recommending that. And again, the side effects are for the most part positives. And so why not? To piggyback off of that, a lot of the studies we read also kind of spoke to the recurrence of prostate cancer. So for men who had prostate cancer in the past and were trying to prevent recurrence, a lot of these lifestyle changes that help prevent incidents in the first place also help prevent recurrence. Which is really important to know. Well, I do have one anecdotal story. So I am a food for life cooking instructor through the Physician Committee for Responsible Medicine. And there was a time when I was doing a lot of classes, <laughs> like three or four a week. And I was doing a class for a group and a, a married couple came and after a few of the sessions, they decided they were going to go fully plant-based at home. It made a lot of sense to them. They changed their diet. And then the father of one of the couple came to visit. He had had increasing PSAs. It had been determined that upon return after the visit, they were probably going to go ahead and get him scheduled to remove the prostate. He ended up staying with them for several weeks because he was at their house and he doesn't cook. He was just eating what they were cooking, went back. They retested his PSA and guess what? It had dropped by so much that they decided that they could hold off and he decided to continue eating that way. So it made a huge difference in just a few weeks for him. I think it was like six or eight weeks that he stayed with them. So that was very shocking to me because I had never heard of something like that happening, but obviously very dramatic and a story of something that could be possible. He was going to maintain the standard of care, obviously, but his doctor said, you know what? This looks really good. Let's just keep doing what you're doing and see how that goes. All right, so let's move on to talking about food in particular. So what are the top foods that men should add to their diet for prostate health to reduce the risk of developing prostate cancer? Interestingly, uh, tomatoes. A lot of studies uh, show the benefit of tomatoes. There, there is a, a chemical called lycopenes that has been shown in a variety of studies to interfere with the uh, multiplication of prostate cancer cells. And so um, tomatoes are really an important part of the diet. Cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts have also been shown to be really helpful. Uh, soy has been shown to be helpful. And one of my favorites is green tea. Uh, I think it's really easy to do. There's a variety of green teas. And uh, green tea is really healthy for us in a lot of ways. And there's uh, epidemiological studies that show that people who drink green tea have less prostate cancer. Dr. Gavi basically touched on everything, everything important to say. But one other thing that's really interesting is that a lot of the 
foods that we found kind of reduce your risk for prostate cancer, so the cruciferous vegetables, the lycopene and tomatoes, the soy, the isoflavins and soy, these things also have a huge impact on your risk for other leading causes of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. So they making these lifestyle changes, adding these foods into your diet, increasing your exercise also decreases your risk for heart disease, for diabetes, for stroke, a lot of the other leading causes of death in the U.S. So it's a win-win-win. Basically, these are foods that are going to be good for us regardless. They just have the added bonus, especially for men. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Now, as a food for life instructor, one of the things that I had read in the research and I had been teaching is that with tomatoes, when you cook them, it tends to release more lycopene. But do y'all feel that it matters whether men are eating more raw or cooked or just get as many tomatoes and sources of lycopene as you can? What's your opinion on that? That was like one of the most interesting things we found. So it's not only just cooking the tomatoes, but also cooking them in olive oil, specifically that combination seemed to have a very positive uh, connection. And then um, when you think about cooking tomatoes, my, my first thought goes to tomato sauce. And that is one of America's greatest sources of tomatoes in their diet is tomato sauce. And that's a really easy way to integrate this delicious food into your diet. I'm glad you didn't say pizza. I thought you were going to say pizza. Because <laughs> you know pizza is considered a vegetable in, in schools. So, right. um, no, that's great. And it makes it, you know, so delicious and tasty. That's a good pairing together is olive oil and tomatoes. You think about Mediterranean diets, too. Like that combination is very typical in Mediterranean diets as well. Can we go quickly through some examples of cruciferous vegetables because not everybody's familiar with what the different cruciferous vegetables are. So some of the most common ones that you see every day, you're going to have broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, kale. Some of the like lesser known ones would be bok choy, watercrust, daikon, those kind of vegetables. Delicious. Love it. And yeah, there's so many ways to incorporate those, um, whether you're roasting veggies or having a salad or, you know, having it steamed on the side. So there's all kinds of, even in your smoothie, kale smoothies. I mean, if that's a good starting place for people that aren't into those greens, you could start there with something sweet. Okay. So here's, here's where I want to go next. The controversy. Soy. All right. There's this comes up so often for me, but especially when it comes to boys and men. So there is this idea that men in particular should avoid soy because it's feminizing or it's going to impact their hormones in a bad way. So let's talk about soy for men because it's something that it seems to reduce the risk of prostate cancer. Is it safe? And should men be eating it or avoiding it? I, I don't think there's a great studies around that. Uh, I do think that some of the concern comes from people taking mega doses or, you know, at some point, maybe people may want to put soy tablets or, or high doses. So I think that um, perhaps I would have concerns about soy tablets or, or supplements or powders that people would add to their food where it's these very high levels. But I think soy as part of a healthy diet is overall healthy. And I think that the food studies that actually look at food, soy food, people are overall healthier. And so I think the food studies inform us that when people eat soy-based foods, um, they're overall healthier. So I don't think we have to be concerned about that when people incorporate soy as part of a healthy diet. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen 
grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to and they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hardy broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests, but like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part and it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows and then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you want to give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. And something we found is that soy is just an excellent source of protein. Like Dr. Gavi was saying, the soy products, not like soy powders or soy supplements. Um, soy itself, and, uh, for example, like tofu. It's an excellent source of protein, fiber, folate, calcium, iron. And societies that eat soy as a main source of protein do tend to have lower rates of prostate cancer. You see that in Southeast Asia. You see it in Central Asia in places that have soy products as, more, as a bigger part of their diet. Um, and specifically in our research, we found that um, soy contains an important organic molecule called isoflavins. Which, are, which have pretty powerful anti-cancer properties. So a lot of the studies we were reading, through the use of isoflavins, soy has been protective against prostate cancer. And yeah, I like how you listed out the different things. I, I think here it's mainly cultural because there's so many people that aren't used to it. But like you're saying, there's some societies where they freely eat soy throughout the day and nobody's worried over there. And, you know, there's none of that stuff that's happening that people are worried about here. But it's also just delicious. You know, I love getting and my kids both. I have only boys and my boys love tofu. They can eat it almost just plain, like straight up. But I love cutting it into cubes and marinating it and putting it in the air fryer and making them nice and toasty or doing baked tofu. Tempeh is so delicious. Um, edamame, we get that often when we go out to eat and then you can flavor it and marinate it lots of different ways too. And even soy milk. One thing that I love about soy milk is that it's naturally creamy. You don't have to add a bunch of thickeners and gums or anything like that to have a naturally creamy, nice, thick milk that you can 
drink, add to your smoothies or use in your recipes. So I think all of those products are definitely part of a health promoting diet. And so far, I still have two boys, uh, very much so. So they've been eating soy since they were little. <laughs> so it doesn't seem to be having any effects like that on them. Okay, so let's talk about what are the foods that men should avoid or limit for prostate health? So we talked about the things we should be including, which help promote health in lots of different ways. What are some of the things that might have a negative impact? Great question. And kind of calls back to something Dr. Gavi was saying earlier about like not taking away or adding too much to your diet, but rather, you know, making small sustainable changes that like add to your life. Um, and one of those areas is dairy. So a lot of the studies we looked at found that very high fat dairy products like whole milk, for example, can have a detrimental effect on your risk for prostate cancer. But lower fat dairy products in some cases had no effect, in some cases were even protective. So making that transition between a high fat dairy product to a lower fat dairy product, avoiding the potential risk and maybe even potentially giving yourself some um, benefits is a really easy way to... Uh, integrate healthier changes into your into your diet. Well, let's talk more about dairy. What else did you learn about dairy? I mean, I, I'm just going to be completely transparent here. I don't love the stuff. And so I talk a lot about as a pediatrician in my work in particular, all the different detriments that can happen to kids when they're exposed to especially high levels of dairy. Is there anything else interesting that you found with dairy and prostate cancer? it was kind of a linear connection between like the higher fat dairy you go into, the more it increases your risk. Um, so just that really linear connection where if you stay towards the, the bottom, you're going to be minimizing your risk as much as possible. Yeah. So I have done a custom class for men. And one of the things I talk about in my class is prostate cancer. And then of course, we talk about all the stuff, we talk about the studies, and then I show them how to make these amazing, delicious recipes. But I have a funny story about the dairy because I had men probably for between 20 something and then up to 70s in this class. And they were very attentive. Some of them were there only because their wives made them go, but it's good. They had a fun time. <laughs> and there was this very sophisticated looking gentleman. You could tell he was very clean cut, put together. And I'm talking about dairy and, you know, what, you know, they should think about, you know, when it comes to dairy and different risk factors and heart disease and all of that. And this gentleman raises his hand and he's like, well, if I'm not drinking milk with my meals, what should I drink? <laughs> and one of the younger men in the class was like, water. <laughs> but it was, you know, I could just tell that this was a bad, probably his mom, when he was a kid, drilled it into him. You must have milk, you know, two, three times a day. And he was just used to having it with his meals. And it's been like 70 years, you know? So a lot of it is also just what we get used to, you know, like to him, that's, that's going to be a big mental hurdle. Like, all right, if I'm not going to drink milk, what am I going to drink? But the good thing is, is that we have over 20 commercially available plant milks out there. So there is a lot to choose from and a lot to taste. So. Right. And if you were to ask us, we would say drink green tea. With yeah. That can't yeah, hurt. definitely. <laughs> All right. Is there any other foods besides dairy that men should think about limiting? The heaviest hitters when it comes to prostate cancer is going to be red meat and processed meats. Um, the World Health Organization in 2015 actually personally classified red and processed meats as carcinogens, which are substances that can cause cancer. Um, and specifically, the International Agency for Research on Cancer has separately recognized red and processed meats as directly increasing men's risk for prostate cancer. Uh, so again, Dr. Gavi and I, we would never recommend completely cutting something out of your diet, but working towards you know, modifying your diet to reflect this pretty strong data that shows that there is a strong link between prostate cancer and red and processed meats. Yes, you know, I think as a practicing doctor, one of my roles is to help people make the change or change management because change is hard. And I think that, uh, you know, food is obviously social, emotional, mental, and we just have to approach that change with respect about people's food history 
and have a conversation with them about how to make a change that's going to be healthier for them long term. But we do want to respect uh, culture, history, family values and tradition as we approach making that change. So for some people, it may take a little longer. And I, I, you know, I'll say it again because I think it's worth repeating is that I always try to incorporate pleasure, joy into something that's going to be uh, hopefully lifelong. Absolutely. And that also gives us so many health benefits. And I completely agree. You know, I'm also a health coach. So to me, it's very important that people decide for themselves what it is that they want and to try to help them get to that vision with these small changes in habits and behaviors. But I also wholeheartedly believe that it is our duty that we have to give them full informed consent because there will be people out there. I'm one of those people. There will be people out there who, if they have that evidence, they're going to go all the way and they need to know. So we have to give them informed consent without judgment, without having particular expectations so that people can make the decision for themselves. And then we're there to help them. We're there to help them with the mini habits or the big leap, whatever it is they feel that they're capable of and that they desire. You know, I I always say it's not all or nothing because there's a lot of people that don't want to go all or nothing. They just want to take those baby steps. But, you know, for a lot of these things, a little bit more is going to be helpful. Just like you were talking about the exercise, Maya, you know, one hour of exercise is great, but if we can increase it to two hours, even better, right? So um, meet people where they are, but also make sure that we're giving them all the information so that they can be responsible for their decisions. I really like that. Let me just, one thing I want to just say, one of our central theme of this book is to really share the data and kind of, you know, this is the data, we're going to get out of the way. (laughs) This is not the story of my PSA or my friend's PSA. This is the data, and our our purpose or or, or mission really was to create the most data-driven book on prostate cancer and nutrition, and hopefully, Dr. Yami, when you looked at it, it was clear that that was the mission. Uh, We have 100 studies that are are, um, well-reviewed, and even the studies that don't make it into the text, there is an annotated bibliography of studies that we just didn't want to make the text too dense with studies. And so we had so many studies, we then created this annotated section where we just review more studies. And so our job, our role was to create um, the the most authoritative book on the matter so that people can, in essence, decide for themselves. Yeah. And you definitely achieve that. And I love it because there are people who are going to want to delve deeper, look up the studies themselves, read a little bit more. And there's people that are like, you know, you're the the scientists, the doctors are going to take your word for it. It's a very well-written book, and it's also very easy to read and follow, which is really great. Is there anything else y'all wanted to add about either things to do or not to do to decrease the risk of prostate cancer? I guess I would, you know, in terms of to do is um, for people to keep an open mind, to be open to the strength of the data, because I think it's pretty profound w- when you look at the data, how profound it is and to be open to that, and to begin taking the steps of the journey. Uh, as you know, the journey gets easier the more steps you take fo- forward. And uh, as a practicing doctor, I'm really impressed how people's capacity for change. You know, I have people who tell me, I love pizza. I can't imagine life without pizza. The quality of the pleasure of my life would be so low. And a year later, I don't really miss it. Did I really like it? <laughs> so our capacity for change and the things that we derive pleasure from can really change. And I, I uh, you know, welcome people and invite people to, to have an open mind about their capacity for change. Oh, I love that. And to kind of piggyback off of that, um, this is such an individual process, right? The things that um, our history, what we're used to, our habits, that's such an individual thing and making changes to those baby steps is absolutely a good way to go for some people. Drastic change is a good way to go for other people. And like taking the data, taking the evidence that is seen in research and applying that to your own life, speaking with your physician, speaking with your family members, your community members, and deciding on what works 
for you individually, I think that's probably the best way to approach this. I love it. Well, what do you wish more people knew? We can start with Maya. I think I wish more people knew just the the massive amount of data there is. I think people assume that if something's really important to their health, their physician is just going to bring it up and that someone else will take care of it or someone else will mention it. But the reality is this is such a prevalent, such an impactful issue in men's lives. And it's really not talked about as much as it could be. And I don't want anyone to think that if something was important, it would have already been talked about. I wish people would kind of take this opportunity to empower themselves with knowledge, to like take that next step and to look into the data themselves and to make, like you were saying, Dr. Yami, informed consent, make decisions for themselves with conviction that's based on knowledge. I love it. Dr. Gavi? I really echo what Maya said. She's exactly right. Medical professionals, doctors, we're really busy in the office. We've got a lot going on. We're trying to stay on top of a lot of data on medications, medication interactions, lab work, insurance paperwork. The fact that we didn't bring it up doesn't mean that it's not important. Um, And I do think that sometimes lifestyle issues, because they're not pressing where it has to happen today, they don't get addressed, but they're in some sense more powerful than some of the strongest medications we have. And so um, I encourage people to uh, become more more engaged, more involved, and um, learn for themselves. Yeah, that's very well said. And not only can it be more powerful, but the side effects, like you were saying before, are beneficial side effects, right? Like some meds, yeah, they might be powerful, but they're powerful in ways that are negative too. They give us side effects that we don't want. And then you end up thinking, well, is it even worth taking this medication? You know, I'm feeling these things in order to get this thing. So it could be a win-win-win at the end of the day to think about these things. Then the other piece that I would say also is, um, you know, as doctors, we don't spend a lot of time learning about nutrition in medical school and certainly not in residency and, and in our practice. And so actually, I was really surprised as a practicing doctor for almost 25 years. Um, I was at Harvard and Stanford. I am at Stanford. And I was not as familiar with these studies, and despite being at these really amazingly wonderful institutions with really smart people. And it's just because we're busy. And I was really um, impressed. I was so impressed and motivated and moved that I took time out of my schedule to put this book together because I said, someone needs to tell the story. And this is uh, the the background for the story is I was moved by the enormity and and power of the data that I said, somebody needs to share the story with uh, people to let them know um, what is possible. Yeah. And we're so grateful for that. But it's true because medical education actually moves and changes very slowly. And as practicing physicians, you know, we stick to what we've learned. We do our CMEs. We keep practicing the way that we're practicing, the way our colleagues are practicing around us. And it really takes deliberate action to go out and stay in touch with some of these aspects that aren't really part of mainstream medicine. Like the nutrition stuff just isn't part of mainstream medicine. We're learning more about this new drug or, you know, this new treatment rather than how can we prevent some of these things that we're seeing. That is true. A lot of mainstream medicine is appropriately or not appropriately, but very consumed with treating existing diseases. A lot of doctors, hospitals, specialists, focus on treating existing diseases, cancers, new chemotherapy agents. And so as a medical institution or a medical establishment, that occupies a lot of our um, day-to-day work. And so as a result, some of these important issues uh, don't get as much attention as, as they could benefit from. Absolutely. Well, I am so glad that both of you took time to read this book. If you could tell our listeners how they can connect with you and the name of the book again and where they can find it. We'd both be happy to provide our email addresses if listeners would like to um, reach out via that route. Um, We can provide that for you. The name of the book is Prostate Health, Simple, Proactive Choices That Work. And you can find it on Amazon. You can find it really anywhere online that sells books. Um, 
and we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to reach out to, to listeners and engage with people because that's that's our goal at this point is just making sure this data is heard. And Maya, what year are you in medical school? I'm a second year student. Awesome. Yeah. Do you know yet what you want to do when you graduate? <laughs> yeah, I want to be a pediatrician. Oh, <laughs> yes. Sorry, Dr. Gotti. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little too enthusiastic, but... <laughs> You know, <laughs> my husband's an internist, okay? So <laughs> I live with an internist. <laughs> All right, awesome. Okay, so final question. Each of you, if you could leave us with your number one piece of advice for men interested in reducing the risk of prostate cancer. Uh, read the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and I think, I think learn, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of available information. And the fact that you, you have may, maybe didn't come across it yet, doesn't mean that it's not available. There are very powerful steps you can do to make a big difference in the quality of your life. My, my last piece of advice is similar to Dr. Gavi's where uh, it's basically just so much more of your risk is in your hands than you realize. So much more, there's so much more power for your health in your hands than you realize and empowering yourself with education and um, these simple, simple lifestyle changes can make such a huge difference. You have more power than you think. Yes, and every little bit counts. So the sooner you can get started, even with little baby steps is better than nothing. Well, Maya and Dr. Gavi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for writing this book and all of the time that you've taken. It's going to help so many people and touch so many people's lives for the better. I appreciate you so much. And I hope that you both have a very plantastic day. Thank, thank you. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.